The working title of this series, as we know, is, as the slide suggests, Redefining Radical. And we understand from, from Scripture that the call to follow Jesus is an absolute radical call. It's a way of life that is considered radical. And in modern Christian circles, it seems that sometimes that doesn't always sit that well with us. The last thing we want people around us to consider us is the word radical sometimes. And, and I know as a kid growing up and, and uh, family members coming to grips with me becoming a Christian, oh, don't bring that radical stuff here. Nowadays, this idea of being radical is associated with extreme things. And, um, you know, there's extremism in, in certain religious movements. And this seems to inspire terrorism in some. And we speak of de-radicalizing people who might go down that path. Um, and there's been some extreme expressions of Christianity that have kind of been off-putting, even in a mild way in today's day and age. I mean, you know, I think of the street preachers of the 80s and 90s. You know, I actually, uh, you know, was ex- this was my first exposure to Christianity, <laughs> you know, this sort of stuff. And, and down Burke Street Mall in Melbourne, you know, a guy with a shopping jeep. Remember those things? You know, you go shopping in those, you know, one with four wheels, not the drag along one. And, uh, and it's got placards all over it and this guy's yelling out, turn or burn. And it was uh, quite a confronting thing. I think of some of the protests and the picketing that have gotten out of hand you know, against society issues and, and uh, some of the things that have actually become, gotten out of, you know, devolved into uh, fisticuff moments. Uh, you know, how do we represent Jesus that way, you know? Um, I think of the overexpression of spiritual gifts <laughs> in, uh, in some churches and also the complete ignorance of them in others. You know, I think of the overly liberal expressions and the universalist expressions and uh, the ones which believe our, con- our actions now are pretty much inconsequential. I even called to mind an article I read last year. A lady pastoring a church, I think it was over in Canada, by her own admission was an atheist. Pastoring a church. And it took her congregation just a little bit too long for my liking to actually start making that an issue. We have extreme thought and conduct in God's living, moving, breathing temple. Radical gone wrong. And as I read 1 Corinthians, I see many of those sorts of things being spoken of and corrected by the Apostle Paul. And I see regular calls for a correct expression of the radical way of the kingdom as we engage with the letters to the Corinthians. Last week, in chapter 3, we saw that the radical way rejects the cult of personality. And it is founded on nothing but Christ and the gospel. That is the foundation of all that we do. And that foundation can only be built upon with things of eternal value. And the, 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 the tough thing to grapple with is that Jesus will be the judge of that on the final day. Human worldly wisdom and power, position and prestige in this life will not sit on God's side of the ledger. Radical service, radical humility, particularly in the way we approach ministry to others, those are the things of eternal value. So anyway, we're going to keep reading and we're going to get into chapter 4 today. We're going to look at the whole chapter and I promise to do it in bite-sized chunks. 
so I don't overwhelm us, and I'll find some general sweeping statements along the way. So we'll start with verse 1 here. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over the other. Leave your thumb there. This chapter is putting on the final touches of the big first point that Paul has been making these last few sermons. These verses again demote Paul and subsequent church leaders and they round out some of the thoughts of chapter 3. In the previous chapter, Paul states that they be, instead of having a following that belonged to them, they as leaders belonged to those that they served. In the same way, I belong to you. I am positioned to serve you. And the Bible talks about mutual submission, so we actually hold that position towards each other. You don't belong to me you know, in, in, as a possession per se, but we do belong to each other. You don't exist to build my ministry platform or any of those sorts of things. We are co-labouring together to demonstrate the kingdom of God. This is then tempered in chapter 4 with the idea that this sort of service comes as a fruit of first serving Jesus. First and foremost, we are servants of Christ. And out of that position, we serve each other. Being a servant of Christ here is actually a different word to the one he used for service towards men. Here, it speaks of somebody who is completely subservient in this context, is to Jesus as a master. And Paul sees himself as a steward of the things that God is now revealing to the world. That's what the mysteries means here. The things of God once not fully understood, but is now becoming more plain through the gospel. This is then the position from which ministers serve as they lead. Can I just put a side note there? There's a writer on Christian leadership out at Sri Lanka and he wrote this statement that burnout occurs when the wick is burning but the oil has already left. When we consume ourselves with serving people and when we quantify our faith by that action alone, when we lose sight of the fact that it's ultimately Jesus we are first serving before anyone else, the oil leaves. We do it in our own strength and we end up with human glory, not the praise of heaven. And we burn out. People who have left church getting jaded because they served, served, served in ministry 
Some of those, okay, they got used and abused. But some of those simply just lost sight of the fact that it was Jesus they were serving first. It's important to know that. If we're not born, if leadership and if ministry is, and anything that we do as a congregation, if, if any form of service does not come from an idea that I serve Christ before anyone else, then this becomes a social club. It ceases being the temple of, the, of God. Instead, we are completely subservient to Christ and out of this position, we then offer diakonos, leading servant ministry to others. And Paul writes that there is only one master that matters. In both chapter 3 and what we've just read now, Paul is aware that everything right down to his heart's motivation is going to be held to account by the Lord. And he says, if that's the case, what's the worst verdict that mere mortals can hand down? And when one lives this way, the only thing that matters is what Paul calls in verse 5, praise from God. Man, who wants to hear that? On that final day, I want to hear praise from God. I want to hear that word, well done. Perhaps that gives more of a clue about the apparent rewards of chapter 3. After the fire, the most praiseworthy things in God's eyes stand. That actually reflects some of the foyer talk we had last week. Conversations I had with people in the, in the foyer afterwards and people actually saying, I just long to hear those words, well done. That'll be enough, that'll be reward enough. As we read on towards the end here, we have a phrase that Paul also quotes. Don't go beyond what's written, he says. Now, no one has a clue, really. There's a lot of theories about what that stands for. Going beyond what's written can't refer to the New Testament in this case. Why? Most of it hasn't been even penned. All right. 1 Corinthians is the fourth book of the New Testament ever written. It was James, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. That's all we have. So Paul's written most of the, the known New Testament at that time. None of the Gospels have come out yet. It's not a scriptural reference from the Old Testament either. It's actually believed to be a localised turn of phrase. And a couple of scholars even suggest that Paul might have actually come up with this himself. He might have actually, when he was dealing in a synagogue, talking to the Jews, and they're getting a little bit too legalistic, he's going, hang on, don't overstep what's been written. It's something that is well known to the church there. It could be to deal with, you know, don't, you know, he's definitely saying don't read so much into something that you can get a conclusion that's not there. It could feed into the synagogue setting. It could also feed into what we're about to read next, where the Corinthian believers are starting to put, the, put the, the cart before the horse in their faith expression just a little bit. So we're going to keep reading from verse 7 here. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. 
how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We, you are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. And when we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. There's a few things to take out of this because this speaks almost directly into the modern Western world. There is a doctrinal position that people hold today which is called by some triumphalism. Other people call it an overly realised eschatology, an understanding of how this kingdom works. It stems from the way they view what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Pretty much every party agrees that this means at least some degree of tangible kingdom presence and influence. As believers, we consider ourselves to already be in the kingdom. We are citizens of this kingdom already. We know this kingdom is going to be the final authority for all of eternity. Most of us conclude that there is far more to this whole kingdom deal than what we see now. Some in the church see this as a bit more realised than perhaps it really is. Some preach about physical healing as something that must take place. And if it hasn't taken place, it's nothing to do with God, it's your faith isn't good enough. I've lost count of how many preachers I've heard go through churches, a lot of African preachers too, and and in in Western Australia there was a string of them coming through all saying the same thing. Some in the United States preach about all your material problems now being subject to this fully triumphant kingdom. One goes as far as to say you can live your best life now. Some of you may have identified this as what we call prosperity doctrine. I think it's one of the not so good extremes that the church is known for. I know a lot of pastors in that sort of who I would consider part of that genre. I love them dearly and I think their motives are wonderful. And there is no denying the responses to the gospel that hundreds upon thousands of people make. But there is a point where it's very sugary for a long time. I was, at, when I went, I was in primary school once. So I remember my mum loading up my lunchbox with nothing but a heap of sugary stuff. You know how you get notes home? Your son brought sultanas to, to school. How dare you do that? You know, that's not healthy. Bring healthy stuff next time. They would have got, my mum would have copped an epistle that day. And I remember saying to the teacher, I'm only hungry for sandwiches. So this is a weird conversation in my head that I recalled to memory this week. I'm only hungry for sandwiches. In other words, that's all, you know, I'm a five-year-old trying to explain how hungry I am. I, I want something of substance. I don't want to be... I'm going to be hungry even if I eat this. 
sometimes this prosperity stuff does that a bit. It can definitely whip a crowd into an expectant frenzy. Some good things can happen. But have they got the whole gamut of what Christian life is really about? I would suggest that Paul would say no. The church in Corinth seems to hold a view in line with this thinking. It's very triumphant, a triumphant sort of view. Paul words it this way, you've already begun to reign. You're doing it without us. That's an early statement of tri- expression of triumphalism. It's a church with just four years of experience refusing to pursue maturity, refusing to grow theologically, drawing potentially disastrous conclusions as a result. The Corinthian church thinks it has already arrived. And Paul is a bit unhappy about their conclusion here because the lives they are displaying is not in line with what a fully realised kingdom would actually foster. They are actually not living arrived lives. And you can tell he's a little bit upset about it. He's a bit miffed. Because these verses are dripping with sarcasm in response. Look at you and your human wisdom and immaturity. You're so rich. You're so wise. You're so strong, so honoured. You guys are clearly reigning in a fully realised kingdom right now. Good for you. Paul is not commending behaviour here. We've already established that the Corinthians are anything but these things. He's actually pulling these immature believers out of la-la land and bringing them back to earth with a very big thud. That's evident when he contrasts their outlook of life. I'm going to swap mics because this one is getting a little bit silly. Try that one. Paul is saying here, when he writes in this passage, he's saying, you're living out some sort of faith here where all your wildest dreams come true. You're living out wild, like you're already reigning in this kingdom in full. You're living out like you've already arrived. But I'm going to tell you what this Christian life really is. Think about what happens when a Roman army comes home triumphant from a war campaign. Think about the ticker tape parade as they return to Rome with the emperor pulling out all stops to promote the latest victory. The main street is completely closed off. All of the city has stopped everything to line the streets and applaud the procession of returning soldiers. They get to admire the spoils of war and celebrate the generals. There's all this treasure loaded up in carts and chariots and animals. And at the end of that queue, they drag in all the beaten and bloodied people they've taken prisoner along the way. As they're led down the main street, these prisoners of war are jeered and spat on. 
They're whipped and beaten to make sure they keep moving. And to celebrate the conquest, these prisoners are taken to the arena. They'll be made the sport one way or another for the entertainment of a celebrating crowd. Fed to raging animals, forced to battle a decorated warrior futilely. Or just executed unceremoniously as the crowd cheers. With the whole victory and procession dedicated to either the emperor himself or to some other pagan deity. Paul then asks this, Tell me, Corinthians, where do you think people like me and Peter and Apollos fit into a story like that? Are we the emperors? Are we the senate? Are we the the generals? Are we the victorious soldiers? He goes, no, guys. We're the prisoners. I really wish you guys were right in your triumphalism, but while you sit back thinking highly of yourselves and believing all your wildest dreams are coming true, those who have fought tooth and nail for you to enter the kingdom in the first place are still out there facing hunger, challenges, opposition and trouble every way they go. In fact, we are literally considered the scum of the earth. We're the stuff you scrape off of something in order to cleanse the item underneath it. And how do we respond? The complete opposite way to what an immature believer would. The way that Jesus told us to in order to demonstrate the kingdom that has not been fully realized yet. In the face of cursing, we offer blessing. In the face of persecution, we stick it out. When we get slandered, we come right back with a word of kindness. We're going to do the opposite of what the world calls for because the radical kingdom way calls for to us to live like that until his kingdom is fully realized. And then at the end of this, with all that in mind, Paul then drops a couple of bombshells. These are things for the Corinthians to consider before he gets down to other business. We've got some heavy stuff next week. I'll give you the heads up. Next week, next week becomes, well, read ahead. <laughs> it's pretty full on. You're going to have some fun with that one. But for now, he's going to round off just this final thought on, on, on what ministry really is. And so we'll look at verse 14 here. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have any fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I've sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? Three quick bombshells. There isn't enough time to completely expand this whole thing, but let's look at a couple of simple ones. One, 
Paul did not want them to feel shame in all this. This was an honour-shame society that we're dealing with here. For them to come to a position of shame would actually come to a position where they couldn't actually... Then for some, they may, there might not be a point of return. He's going, don't, don't slip into this position of shame because there is no comeback from shame. We're not going to guilt you into this life of service and this radical way of the kingdom. But I will fire a shot across your bowels and give you a warning here. You guys are in error, but I want you to be restored. He's wanting them to come back to their senses. To keep on being the church they were supposed to be. In other words, they could all come when they're hearing this being read out. They could eyeball each other and go, okay, let's all get this thing back on track straight away. Not everyone go back to your corners and lick your wounds and stay in this position of shame and never come back. It's calling the whole church to come to a new position of resolve. But shame and guilt was not the option. Bombshell 2. Persevere with the church even if it's deeply flawed. Some of these Christians in Corinth considered themselves pretty much superior to Paul. And they made light of his ministry in some instances. In Second Corinthians, it says that he was, you know, the assumption or the assessment that was being made of him. He's mighty with a pen, but underwhelming in person. But instead of going, okay, you can find some other apostolic voice to speak to you. I'll let you guys be and I'll find you another church father. Paul doubles down on this congregation and his commitment to them. You guys have loads of guardians. You've had people who have for a season spoken into your lives and been and gone. They've been faithful, but they're not as invested in you as I am. It's not a power play. It's just saying, I'm invested in where your welfare is at. I still want to be a paternal presence in your congregational life. This attitude of service towards them and his sense of wanting their very best has not dulled despite their dissipating passion. He's sending his right-hand man down there to steady them. As they read this letter, Timothy was either in their midst already or about to knock on their door. And Paul says he's looking for the nearest opportunity so he can get right back in there again, and he did eventually. This church in Corinth is all sorts of dysfunctional and flawed. But Paul was happy to jump back in and work with them regardless. Because a kingdom person understands the church is at all times to be a restorative community amongst itself as, in, as well as the world around it. But the biggest bombshell of all for me verse 16 I urge you to imitate me. When he spells out, yeah, here I am in the arena, guys. Yeah, there's a sword on my neck. Imitate me. Yeah, um, what's he saying here? He's saying, get your head out of the clouds. Lose the triumphalism. Understand there's still a lot of work to do and still a lot of life to live, be lived out. 
this side of an eternity and don't live like we've already arrived because that hasn't happened yet. Understand that every sickness, every life challenge is not going to be fully resolved this side of the kingdom. But we have an assurance that we are still in that kingdom regardless of those things because there is a hope that we have. This will affect the way we behave. We don't live out a fully realized kingdom just yet. It's still to come. And if we get ahead of ourselves, we'll end up living an unproductive and immature life. Instead, we anticipate what is to fully come without getting ahead of ourselves. We announce it to all who will hear and we demonstrate as much of the kingdom as we know. In the words of a modern theologian, Scott McKnight, our lives are to be lived out in pursuit of God's kingdom dream now. We pursue justice, holiness, peace, beauty, reconciliation and all those kingdom traits now with the understanding that this will be in the future a reality. So Paul calls the church to reject the factions and the divisions, to stop forcing the gospel through the filter of human philosophy and pagan religious experience and instead come and merge with the apostles' journey. Take your place among the servants and the stewards. Be willing to be numbered among the fools of this world for the sake of the gospel. Join them in the Main Street Victory March, knowing that their part in that parade is a grisly one. At all times, be part of a restorative movement. Remember that at all times, that the church is to be a temple, the dwelling place of God, not a social club. To imitate Paul means to be a parent to somebody, not just a guardian. Take responsibility for the welfare of somebody else. Ask any parent how much their priorities shift when a child comes into their world. It did change, didn't it? Ask a good parent how much they actually love the result of that priority shift. Consider how that applies to us and a new or a struggling believer and the relationship between the two. Can we parent somebody else? Can we, be, can we bring someone that close alongside us? And finally, if this imitation thing is a perpetual thing, we should be imitatable ourselves. Whether you know this or not, even if you like this or not, Somebody, somewhere, is taking their Christian cues from you. Let's be responsible with that now that we know, in case you didn't. I'm going to leave that for the moment. I'm going to invite the band up now. And we'll worship the Lord just a few, a little bit longer to complete our time to get today. But let's take a moment just to reflect. Let's bow our heads for one moment.
I realise as I cover a whole chapter of one book, there's a lot of thoughts being thrown out there, but what I always find through experience is that the Spirit causes us to latch onto one of them. Whatever that is, maybe it's the, the understanding of kingdom now versus kingdom to come. Maybe it's the reminder of the call to, or frankly, martyrdom. That the word witness and the word martyr are, are related. Maybe there's elements of the kingdom life, way of life that we might have overlooked until today. Whatever it is, we're going to pause for this time. Just allow yourselves and ourselves to realign with what the Spirit is doing in us. Perhaps you've been serving, serving, serving. Serving each other, serving others. And you've done so at the expense of understanding that you're serving Christ. Maybe one is happening without the other. That's a recipe for burnout, church. Maybe the Lord wants to realign that as well. Maybe Jesus wants to call you back today and go, where are you up with me? Whatever it is, we're going to allow the Lord to, to speak into, you, into our lives. And then we'll worship in just a few moments' time.